Hey, everybody, and welcome to another My JavaScript Story. This week, we're talking to Eduardo San Martin Morote. And we had you, uh, Eduardo, on episode 10 and episode 38 of Views on View. Yeah, that's right. Talked about all kinds of stuff, uh, view libraries and open source meetups. We talked about WebAssembly and TypeScript. <laughs> so, yeah, kind of uh, a lot of different things. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. You know, before the show, you mentioned that you're from Spain and live in France. So, uh, yeah, what else should people know about you? What else? Um, well, I'm, I'm a bicultural person, if you can say that, which means I learn, I mean, bicultural, they are very similar to be fair, like France and Spain are next to each other. So it's almost the same thing, but we're very different people. And I basically went to a French school when I was a kid and my mother spoke to me in French, but I was living in Spain, the South of Spain to be more actually. So I speak both French and Spain as a native language. Both languages sound the same to me and they work the same way in my brain. And because of the situation in Spain when I was 18, so that's like uh, nine years ago, it wasn't very good, especially job-wise. So I decided to move to France for studies where the situation was much better. And I've been living there here, I mean, in France for the past nine years already. So it's always fun to <laughs> say that I'm Spanish to people when I have a, a perfect accent in French. Although as any, any person who speaks multiple languages, sometimes you have some slides and you, you go yeah. you go into an, a viola language with some accent or some word and some intonation. So it's fine. Yeah. So is your mother French then? Oh, actually she's not. She grew up in France. Okay. So she feels more French than Spanish, but funny enough, and look, sorry, short, she was born in Spain. So she's Spanish. Gotcha. Yeah, my grandmother was French, so. Already? Yeah. So, Do you yeah. some other French or language? Not really. Uh, I studied <laughs> French in high school, but uh, not a lot of it stuck because then I went and lived in Italy for two years and it all kind of got yeah. mixed yeah. up. Italy, yeah, but yeah. So um, let's let's get a little bit of a feel for who you are and what you're about. Um, I'm I'm a little curious just to get started. What's what's your background? So you grew up in Spain. You speak Spanish and French. Did you grow up around technology, or you know, were you kind of into other things and then came into it as an adult? What, you know, wh wh where does all this come from for you? Yeah, it was. I had a, I would say, pretty boring uh, background, a very, a very 
um, classic, nothing particular. I, I had a good education. My, my parents were always, always took care about my education very well and made sure that I had everything I needed so I could focus on education. Uh, and I did all the years of education I had to without having to redo any year. So I was all about science. I really liked science when I was a kid. Uh, I was a lot into math uh, when I was younger. And, and I liked uh, video games a lot when I was a kid too. Mm-hmm. And at some point, uh, I think I was around 13 uh, years old. Um, we were watching, it was the Flash era at that time. So we, we had that, these animations uh, on the web uh, that were made on Flash and they were so cool. And with a friend, we saw this animation, which is quite well known. I think it's called Stick versus Animator or Animator versus Stick or something like that, or versus drawing. It's very, very easy to find out in YouTube. And in one of the videos, because they have three versions, like three is a three trilogy. <laughs> in one of them, I think it was the second or the first one, you can see uh, on the desktop, because everything happens on a computer, uh, you can see an icon of a program called Game Maker. And my friend and I were interested about it because we love video games. We're saying, oh, it could be fun to create some video games. And... Um, so uh, we downloaded that um, and we tried around the program uh, to create video games. So we basically were doing what we call the drag and drop using the drag and drop interface because we didn't know how to program or anything. And at some point, my, my friend, he, he got more into music, uh, to be fair. And I, was, I kept going on with the, with the programming. And as I, I started to get deeper and deeper, going through forums and everything, I started to get into code samples because it turned out that even though GameMaker, you could use it as a drag and drop application, you could also write your own code. And it was a C-like programming language called GameMaker language, GML, uh, AML to make it short. Uh, I was reading and reading and modifying this code after I think one year and or one year and a half of doing these during the weekends or after school when I was done with my homework, um, after reading and modifying and testing my own things uh, with this programming language, I was more or less proficient to write m- my own things. So it's in, in a way, it's funny because I learned how to program without really knowing that I was learning how to program, but it took me one year. <laughs> so after that, I, I kept I kept on learning um, the game maker language and doing small games. Some of them are, are still out there. Uh, I think that there are the platform, it was called Yo-Yo Games, is, is not available anymore. I think it was shut down probably a few years ago, not that long ago. But I do still keep the executables and the, even the game maker files that you could, so the, the, the project files of the games. Uh, on my on some pen drives and on my Dropbox, so I can play around with them, and it's really cool. And it's always fun to look back at the things I learned and how I was better at some some things uh, that I right now, like um, some mathematical things related to trigonometry and physics that now I don't use anymore in, in front end development. So I I completely forgot about them. So I keep using this program until I was uh, nineteen, I think. Uh, yeah, 19. And this is when I got into C and C++ at university. Uh, so after graduating from, from school when I was 18, I went to France to do 
a degree in mathematics and computer science. Um, and I had so much free time that I, I spent a lot of time working on games and doing more programming on my own. It was fun. And I kept on improving my skills uh, and my knowledge, but I was mostly doing C++ and C because that's what you use to do games. You need to be very as close as possible to the metal, but not too much. You can still have a higher, uh, higher level programming language that you can use, but be efficient. And it wasn't until I, my fourth year of studies when I was doing engineering that I saw, it was with Node.js actually, I could see that JavaScript wasn't the toy language it used to be anymore. And that you could have modules, you can split into files and curly structure a project and, and things were getting cleaner. And this is when I got, got more interested into, and I also saw that there were more, like a market was, was there, it was clearly there at that point. Uh, so it was interesting to know about it. And I, and I felt, uh, I found front, uh, front end and to be more honest, like full stack at that time to be very interesting precisely because compared to web de to game development, when you want to ship the thing you're creating, you have to compile the game for every platform you want uh, to share the game with, which means that unless you do a cross compilation, which wasn't that easy at that time, now it's easier with things like Rust, but still, you still need the machines to do it. Unless you have that, you have to run a compilation step on Linux, on Windows, and on Mac, so you can deliver these three executables to your public. Yep. And now, on top of that, for them to use it, they have to download the file, which is probably a bunch of megabytes, depending on how much, how many assets you have and how heavy they are. And then they have to run it. Uh, then everything is good. Everything is it's fluid. Everything goes fast and and nice. But on the web, you just give out a URL. They go there and the browser takes care of everything and they can just interact with it right away. So that was to me very appealing uh, because when I was creating things, I, if I couldn't share them, then it wasn't that interesting for me. So being able to share something right away is an incredibly selling point. And I think that that's probably why the web works so much nowadays because you just, you just have to use the browser and get the URL and you have the content, you have the application running on your phone or your computer. Right. So, so it's... So yeah, so at what point did you run across web then? I mean, you make the transition from writing uh, games with GameML and, and all this stuff. Um, how old were you when you were writing games and how old were you when you made the transition to the web? I was 21. Um, I'm 27 right now, so it wasn't that long ago. But I was still doing studies. Um, and I, I had the, 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 the luck, the chance to be able to do projects in web development or in whatever field I wanted to I, at my engineering school. So it was easy for me to keep doing both at some time. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, did you study in France or in Spain? France, France. All my university studies in France. Everything okay. before 18 in Spain. Gotcha. One of the things that I have as a goal for devchat.tv is to cover technologies that are up and coming, things that we're probably going to have to deal with on a more regular basis in the future. Some of these include AI, VR, and one of them is blockchain. So I reached out to one of the experts that I knew, Gregory McCubbin, and we pulled together a few other people and we've started a podcast called Adventures in Blockchain. So if you're looking at blockchain as something that you may want to work in, something that you're curious about learning more about, 
or something that you just want to keep current on until you have the opportunity to make a career jump and go over and work in blockchain and crypto, then definitely check out Adventures in Blockchain. You can find it at adventuresinblockchain.io. So, so yeah, so you liked uh, JavaScript because it was sort of a universal platform that you could build things on. Um, so did you start building immediately with Vue or were you using other things like uh, D3 or something like that? <laughs> no, I, I, I really went for the classic. So I didn't generally school where doing Java. Now that mm-hmm. I enjoy it too much, uh, to be honest, for the backend, we're doing these uh, G2E. I think that's the name in English. We, in French, it was G2E. And um, I, I didn't enjoy it at all. It wasn't, it was slow to build, I mean, slow to write verbose, not funny. And I was more focusing on the, on the front end, to be honest. And I was doing jQuery because that was the golden era of jQuery and Bootstrap. It was, that, it was that time where every single website would look like Bootstrap. <laughs> they have themes and you can buy a theme for $10 and, and right. have everything look different, but it was Bootstrap. <laughs> so that's how I got into, into web development through, uh, through jQuery, Bootstrap, Require GS. That's what I started with. Yep. So yes, yeah, so you get into web development. Um, are you still writing games with JavaScript or have you moved more into more traditional uh, web applications? I professionally speaking, I, I, I never done games. Uh, so I've only done front uh, like web development. I do enjoy to write some things. And the thing is I don't have, I don't find the time to write my, my own games right now because it, it does require a lot of time. And just usually spend a lot of time testing things out because it's so funny. Right. But because I do the open source on top of my job, uh, I don't have, on top of working for, uh, like, as, like as a contractor because that's, that's how I work. I don't have that much free time to do these uh, games, but I still try to do some experiments from time to time. I don't always pub- publish things, but I, I'm starting to do more experiments like 3D. And I'm starting to do some 3D now, uh, getting into shaders and fragment shaders to be specific. But uh, I, I've done some games. I've, I've done one game in JavaScript. It was in a Lundare, uh, which is a 48... Um, kind of competition around the world where you have to create a game from scratch. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're still allowed to use frameworks like uh, Phaser, Pixie for anybody familiar um, with using giants. Right. But you still have to create everything else uh, during that frame of time, 48 hours. So the music, the graphics, uh, the gameplay, the idea, and everything is based around uh, a concept. So it can be, for example, you only get once, uh, I know the world, and many many themes, and I did that. I did that once uh, because it's still the whole weekend, <laughs> um, and I haven't been able to do it again. Although I would love to. Yeah, it, that sounds like fun. That sounds like a lot of fun. And yeah, I don't. I don't know how possible it would be to do it with my kids, but I think my kids would enjoy that too. But if I once I uh, I get I I have kids, I would definitely teach them and see if they love if they like it, if enjoy it. Creating uh, yep. video games because right now, as a nowadays, there are many platforms where you can teach video games and programming to kids, which wasn't the case um, twenty years ago. Yeah, a lot of that is becoming more and more accessible. That's for Absolutely. sure. So, what do you do for work then? Are you working in view at work as well as uh, in your spare time? 
So I, I used to be, I worked at agencies. I also work as a teacher uh, in what I call uh, dev boot camps. Mm-hmm. And I've been working as a freelance now for more than um, a year and a half, but fully doing only freelance. Uh, the reason I do that is because it allows me to have the freedom to contribute on open source, which I really, really like and enjoy, which means that I can still, um, so I can work less um, because I, I'm paid more. So I can work less on paid uh, hours. Uh, so I basically earn less than, I, than I, I earned before, but I also work on paid things much less. I get to do the things that I love. And I still get to love on a very simple, I mean, simple, I'm still, we're still on web development, which is one of the most profitable markets in the job industry right now. But I'm definitely not the same level I I could be as a full-time employee, but I'm happier, I would say. Um, So I do contracts, I do workshops, and I, so it's either by, through agencies or direct contacts. And very recently, I started being able to get some donations that are more considerably considerable through Patreon and then through GitHub with their sponsorship program and also through Open Collective um, of UGS. Very cool. Yeah, I've, I've seen that mostly in the View community where uh, certain members of the community are able to get enough interest on Patreon or Open Collective. Um, yeah. yeah, to to pay at least some of the bills and so then they can spend a little bit more time working on Vue, which is where their passion is anyway. Exactly. Still hard. I mean, still, um, I still, we are still not there except for, I think Evan is, is uh, got there. Like he, he got uh, his objectives. Yeah, I but think the, he's full-time supported, but yeah. yeah. He is full-time, full-time on Vue, but the rest of, of the team isn't. We're yeah. Able to yet. <laughs> yeah, I've had conversations with Chris Fritz and he's he's been trying to get there too so that he can focus mm-hmm. more on the view community. Um and and I think overall the open source community is starting to come around to some of these ideas when it comes to yeah, supporting different people con- contributing to the open source that we use. So yeah, absolutely because at the end so especially the initiative by um GitHub, I mean, uh, Microsoft, I don't know exactly who is behind. I think it's collaboration probably. But um, the fact that they don't take a cut, uh, so they're giving away that cut that they could be taking because at the end of the day, they're providing a service like Patreon does and they do take a cut, but they don't take that cut. So it means more money for the developers. And on top of that, these first year, they are... uh, matching the contributions yes. up to 5,000 per year, which is still uh, very nice. Um, that makes it really, really, uh, it, it's easier for people to sponsor someone and also because it's integrated into the, the, the social network for open source for code. It's so much easier to see uh, people. And when you think about it, it's um, there is something to worry. There's definitely something to change in the way that uh, the software works because nowadays, so much software relies on open source, but very little portion of it um, is maintained by companies that can afford the free delivery, the, the, the cost of maintaining that while still being right. free. But when you think about it, even small contributions, like $1 a month, um, 
by imagine a company using the framework, if they gave one dollar a month uh, to every single developer of the frameworks they use, of course they will grow up, scale up with the size of the company as they have more projects. But I'm pretty sure that the numbers will still be relatively small for the, the company itself. So it means that with just one dollar a month per developer per company, you could easily fund um, the team of you very easily. Yeah. And um, Vue is because it's very used right now, but I'm sure that other project, other projects will also benefit from these very easily. It's still not in our, in our mindset, I think, but there is something to do. Uh, and it's a whole topic if you get into it, but maybe at some point there should be a tax or something, or it should be a tax for the, comp the tech companies. Like there is something that needs to evolve in the way the society, society works for open source to keep growing. And yeah, funded. Yeah, there's a podcast that we just started a few weeks ago um, about this topic. And so, you, you know, you and our other listeners can go listen to it. It's called Sustain Our Software. And uh, yeah, we have a bunch of folks on there who are concerned about um, open source sustainability that talk every week with people in the community about sustaining open source. So uh, definitely go check that out. Cool. You know, I know that Henry. Uh, I think Zhu, uh, yep. it was with someone else. I'm not sure if Tracy. Yes. I, I can't remember sure. her name. I was Tracy. I, I don't remember her name, but, uh, they were doing an, op an open yeah, source. it was okay. called hope, hope in source. <laughs> and, funny. uh, yeah, I, I know Henry and that's why I remember his name. I, I feel bad that I don't remember her name, but, um, it's definitely worth talking about because yeah, people put in a ton of time and then you know, we kind of hit this cycle where they, you know, they get burned out because they don't have the time or they're, you know, they have to work have on other pressure. things or yeah, or they just get tired. And then somebody else comes in, starts doing what they were doing. And after a while they get burned out too. And so we just deal with the same the problem over and over and over again. Yep. One of the biggest pain points that I find as I talk to people about software is deployment. It's really interesting to have the conversations with people where it's, I don't want to deal with Docker. I don't want to deal with Kubernetes. I don't want to deal with setting up servers. I don't, you know, all of these different things. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has gotten a lot easier. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has also kind of embraced a certain amount of culture around applications, the way we build them, the way we deploy them. And I've really felt for a long time that developers need to have the conversations with DevOps or adopt some form of DevOps so that they can take control of what they're doing and really understand when things go to production, what's going on, so that they can help debug the issues and fix the issues and find the issues when they go wrong and help streamline things and make things better and slicker and easier so that they'll more generally go right. So we started a podcast called Adventures in DevOps. And I pulled in one of the hosts from one of my favorite DevOps shows, Nell Shamrell Harrington, from the Food Fight show, and we got things rolling there. And so this is more or less a continuation of the Food Fight show, where we're talking about the things that go into DevOps. So if you're struggling with any of these operational type things, then definitely check out Adventures in DevOps. And you can find it at adventuresindevopspodcast.com. Well, cool. So uh, what are you working on now in the Vue community? So right now, I'm, I'm doing all of the 
tragedy on Vue uh, because we're preparing for Vue 3. So I'm yep. trying to keep the Vue 2 repository triage. And the idea is to get back at the issues and the pull requests that are open in the following month. But our focus right now is on V3, although Evan is mainly doing like the first, there seems some, some work to be done before contributions can be made. And personally, I'm more working on Vue Router. Uh, so the, the router for Vue. I, I rewrote the, the thing. I, I spent a lot of time uh, going through issues, see what are the problems, writing down the things, organizing. Because, and, and it's a very interesting thing, actually, and it's, but it's very hard to explain, uh, to concretely explain the problems that you face, but the router can cover so many parts of the application that people will find the same problems in different ways, and they will want to approach the problem very differently. So they will end up using different APIs to achieve the same result. And the problem with, with that is that sometimes you want to expose APIs for them to use to, to approach the problem in a specific way. But some of these approach, some of these APIs are not compatible with each other or expose other problems. And this is something I, you don't, I think is very, very hard on the router more than other libraries because of the browser uh, compatibility issues. They do not respect they have their own specificities. And because you're the router and you're on top of the API of the, of the browser, and you want to provide the same experience, no matter what browser you're developing for, you have to protect somehow the developer of these things that are not, uh, are not working the same between different browsers. One of the most, um, the, the craziest one to me is how uh, the encoding, for example, doesn't work the same on, on, on browsers. And the exception in this case is Internet Explorer, where you can visit a URL with uh, an and a wrong encoding for the URL that would be, for example, an accent or a Japanese character, um, which should be encoded with a percentage encoding. Mm -hmm. So Internet Explorer will accept that and send the request with uh, an encoded version of a character, which is not legal per standard. Whereas other browsers like Chrome, Safari, or Firefox will, will encode that character and send the encoded version. And these <laughs> create some problems because you cannot know if it's encoded or not. And you cannot automatically encode or decode things because there are some characters like the percentage that has to be encoded all the time because it's the one right. that is encode characters. So it creates a situation where you get some information, which is the URL, and you don't know if it's encoded or not because Internet Explorer is not changing the URL. So maybe the, the person meant a percentage, maybe they meant uh, something else, maybe they meant percentage. What if they actually meant the, the unencoded character or something like that, and it should have been escaped? So it should have been the percentage encoded and then C3, for example, or whether a character yeah. was the encoding form. And you find these situations that you cannot, you cannot solve <laughs> because of how the browsers are built. And it's, a, it's very similar for the rest of the APIs you have, find on the browser, on the browser, on the router. 
uh, that are handled differently and that the users want to use to solve their own problem. Yep. And Makes I know sense. I'm very abstract with that, but, and I cannot go deeper because it gets too complicated. Yeah, we've actually run into issues just on our end with um, the URL. With the yeah, with characters and encoding, especially yeah. when we have people from foreign countries that have accents in their names. So we Absolutely. either have to drop the accent or we have to encode the character. And sometimes, yeah, even sometimes with modern stuff, you know, on the on the web server or anything else, sometimes that just doesn't play nice either. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Anyway, um, if people want to see what you're working on these days or reach out to you, what are the best ways to do that? Reach out to me. Uh, well, in person is always the best. So if I'm in a conference, I always appreciate people coming to me. Otherwise, by Twitter is uh, the way I, I'm reachable. Uh, my handle is Bosva, P-O-S-V-A. And the thing is, the things I work on, so View Router and View, they are accessible. They are, I mean, they're public. But the new versions are not public yet because um, we're still working through some of the API. So we don't want to waste people's time into looking, in, into looking into something that is not yet stable or stable enough. That would be the right word. But I still publish things on my GitHub, <laughs> like small libraries yeah. around view, solutions for the ecosystem, and of course, uh, all the triaging and ViewArch, maintaining ViewArcher itself. And all of that is also um, with the same handle, the post file. All the same handle, my Twitter and my, my GitHub are under the same handle. Awesome, very cool. Well, um, let's go ahead and move to the final segment, which is picks. Do you have some things you wanna shout out about on the show? Oh, well, definitely. I would love to shout out about my GitHub sponsorship page. <laughs> so it's something I've been on for, I think, two months now. Mm-hmm. And I got some sponsorships and it makes me really happy to see people donating money, even if it's just $1 a month, which is really nothing when you're working and using Vue on, on your job. Uh, and it, it really matters, it really counts because it allows me to spend more time uh, working on, on the open source I maintain instead of having to balance out the paid work I have to do to pay the bills and the rent and the food and do the open source, which it, it may look like the, sometimes the open source, the people who are on open source projects that has a lot, have a lot of popularity are doing very well. And it's true that I'm in a very lucky position. I would definitely not, I will admit that. Uh, and I'm very grateful for that. But if I want to keep doing uh, I have to, I, I need to relate to, relay to um, what is the word in English? I need to depend somehow on some kind of um, donation unless a company buys view, which is very, very unlikely. <laughs> yeah. What are the peaks? So anything not related to tech? Yeah, you can, you can pick stuff related to tech too, but oh. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, usually a, it's usually good to pick like one thing that is and one thing that isn't. One thing that isn't. So for the past, I think for the, for the past six, six months, one thing I've enjoyed uh, that I didn't know about is this Mexican um, season, um, seasoning, seasoning, that's a word, mm-hmm. uh, called tajin. Uh, it's a lightly spicy, uh, salty, um, red, reddish mix um, that you pour over the food and you can mix it with very simple things like cucumber and a bit of lime and all the stuff, and it makes your food so so tasty, and I've been enjoying it. So 
so much uh, for the past six months. I try not to use it too much because there is still a lot of salt, so I don't want to get addicted to salt, but <laughs> so tasty. So if you never tried out tahini, I recommend people to try out tahini. Nice. That can you type that into the chat so that we can put it yeah. in the show notes? Well, it can just be a shout out to you, Vixens, uh, for mm-hmm. the amazing jobs they are doing and how lovely the, the, the people behind you, Vixens, are. And I, I'm so happy that this initiative happened with you <laughs> because it, feel, it feels so nice to have such an, such an incredible initiative uh, be, and they are linked to the framework that you love so much. And, and I met the people behind and they're all amazing women because they are, the people behind these are, are women and the, the organization that they're, they're meant for, for uh, people who identify as women. They are all incredible women, very talented. And, and they always do these free events. And I'm so happy that they keep doing these. Uh, and they, they get a bit more support and they're getting very visible. And I see that the React community also wants to do something like that. And I think it's, it's really nice. I see more and more, and I get more, also get more sensitive. What is work? Uh, I, I get more sensi, um, more sensible to the, to the topic. I can see more how there is a more sensitive, problem. sensitive. I think it's world. I'm not sure. Um, I get more sensitive about the topic and I see how the communities are, are interested in. I see more and more people. I uh, get touched. I mean, more people, I mean men, I uh, get touched by the topic and learning. And it's great. It's great to see that. And I yeah. think to people like the people behind you, Vixen, that we have that. And at the same time, it's a shame because it's it's up to the woman to do it when it should be up to us and to also take the step forward. But, yeah, any any initiative that helps people come into tech and creates a friendly space for it, I'm I'm 100% behind it. So... Um, I'm going to jump in with a couple of picks. Uh, the first one is um, I've been playing with a new system. And if you go to devchat.tv and go check out the show notes for this episode, for example, you're going to get a little pop-up that says, you know, allow or block notifications. And I'm using a system called subscribers. You can find it at subscribers.com. And uh, yeah, it allows me to essentially let you know when there's a new uh, views on view episode or a new JavaScript Jabber episode or whatever. So if you're looking for notifications on your desktop, um, it runs through the browser, but you will get notified if there's new devchat.tv content. So uh, definitely go check that out. And yeah, go uh, sign up at just go to devchat.tv and just just put it in. And then if you also go to I'm using another system called I forget what it's called canvas, I think I'll have to look it up. But uh, we're basically using that to do suggestions. So if you want to suggest a topic, you can just go to uh, viewsonview.com or javascriptjabber.com or myjsstory.com. And then, oh, it's canny, canny.io. Um, and then you can just click the plus button and tell us who you'd like to have on or tell us what topics you'd like us to cover. And then we'll make sure that those get scheduled on the podcast. So go check those out as well. And yeah, those are my picks. Eduardo, thank you for coming. This was fun. Thank you for having me. All right, we're, we're going to go ahead and wrap this one up, folks, and we will come back at you next week. Thank you. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit dot com to learn more.